How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. You're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 199. 99 problems, but a saying, regular yeah. schedule ain't one. Yes. Because we're so we're on, on time. top of it, Zeke. One it's time. a Monday night. You got go your up. water. I've got my water that I've drank most got, of prior I, to the show. Like <laughs> I got my non-sugar Coca-Cola. Eight kilos in a month, Zeke. There's no sugar. There. There's, there's no joke. Is that from the Coke? Or is that from other things? <laughs> no, this was last January. I lost eight kilos in a month. That's all I did. I just changed to no sugar Coke. No. Oh. That was... That was I, I feel like I would have mentioned that back then. I think you did. There's no way I didn't. I was going to say, you look yeah. fresh. Thank you. I feel Back end of the year. I feel okay. We're into November now. Fresh, but yeah, well, it's November. Got a lot of... Zeke, you got a lot of exciting things coming up. I do. In the next couple of weeks. I, I might so hold off might until... allude to tease a bit. Yeah, I might tease a little, but maybe hold off until everything's all oh, settled. Oh, I see, I see. All so right. maybe an episode, a uh, milestone episode, where I can talk a little bit more yeah, about Yeah, okay. Or... So no... no... Career update physique just yet. Not yet. I was no. excited. No. Because it's a good one. It is a good one. But you want to be sure. Of course. You don't want to announce you're directing Fast and Furious 57 before... There's a lot, of, there's the a lot route, in the works. Before, you know, you've actually shot it. Another 50 films. A lot of directors before. get fired mid-shoot. Yes. So, yeah, I so, get you. But I'm good. That's I'm good. I'm in my final exams for yeah. my master's degree. You had one so, today and one tomorrow. And one Wednesday, and then that's it. Mm. So by uh, next week's episode, I will have finished my master's degree in teaching. Uh, I'll save the clap for next week. Because like yeah. I said, could get fired at the last at the last second, Zeke. Yeah, I could fail miserably <laughs> these exams. <laughs> but it's a distinct possibility. Very much so. So we wanna we wanna hold our cards close to the chest. How are you, yeah. Jake? No, I'm I'm alright. I'm well. I'm 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 happy because um, we were talking about it earlier. We got Adobe. Mm-hmm. Well, I got I got the they're doing the forty percent off thing right now. Yes. So if you're listening to this the week it comes out, this episode, get on it. Forty percent off Adobe. I got the year planned for about five hundred bucks, which is pretty good. Yeah. All things considered. Expensive week. So, oh, it is an expensive week. Yeah, that and the car service. It's all happening, Zeke. It's all happening. <laughs> but no, that's good. I feel like you know we'll, we'll jump the we'll jump the career section. That's of as course. close as I've got there is the Adobe stuff. So, so that's exciting. I can actually like use. I mean, I've got the stuff at work. It's fine. Of course, but it'll be cool to to do it here without all the rigmaroles of even like doing the Photoshop for this show's thumbnail is getting tricky. Mm-hmm. And it's because all of the thumbnails for all nearly two hundred episodes now are all in the same project. So they're all just layered under each other. Usually I have them, like, ticked off. But it must still be using, like, the power of the GPU because this is running so slowly every time I do a thumbnail. I think I just need to split up. Uh, just take the template and make a new folder. I think I need to do that. Potentially. Yeah. But that that's okay. That's a fun fact about the Cinema Sideshow podcast. I should add it to the... The IMDb page. Yeah. But, yeah, well. But, Zeke, I want to learn about fun facts from the film of the week. The Stranger. Yes. Something we're not after 199 episodes. We're not strangers to each other. Yes. But we've also had very eerily similar experiences as friends to the to the two characters in this film. Would of you course. Would you agree, Zeke? 
<laughs> what being involved in a murder investigation? Not bad part. No, don't 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 say that. Why no, would you of course. Say that? Um, speaking of people that aren't strangers to each other, Sean Harris and Joel Edgington, who right. are our two leads for this film, mm. um, this is not the first time they've shared the screen together. Oh, it's not even the second time they've shared oh, the screen together. Oh my goodness me! No, according to IMDb, they've also shared the screen together in. Yep. The King, which is made by another Australian filmmaker. Mm. And, of course, The Green Knight, which we've talked a little bit about on the show. It hasn't yeah. had too much attention. We, didn't, I don't think we done, haven't done a whole episode on it, but it's great. It's a great film. Yeah. So, about but, yeah, they're both in it. That's a good catch. Um, yeah. What about when, you, Jake? When you say share the screen, I just, like, imagine them in the theatre together, and they're both kind of, like, hugging. Um, They're both hugging the, the screen together, but, like, on each side of the screen. That's what I, when oh, you okay. say share the screen, that's what I think of. Um, but no, my my fun fact is has less to do with the unification of people. In fact, my fact is to do with people, you know, isolating from each other. Because when the film went into production, it was immediately halted by the COVID nineteen outbreak in Australia. Mm-hmm. Of course, April of twenty twenty, we both remember that very well. And what this is over in the South Australia. This is all happening. But the quote from Rachel Gardner, the producer is that this is a challenging time for our industry, particularly for crew, but we are gearing up to move straight into production on The Unknown Man, which will be shooting in and around Adelaide as soon as is practic- practicable. Apparently that's a word. Never heard that used before. Mm. But more interestingly, is that she referred to this film as The Unknown Man, so they, they went from one boring-ass title to another boring-ass title. hey There you go. A little, little dig right there. Just a little dig Just at the a title. tiny dig. Just a little baby dig. Well, we can hear about... More of your digs in the second half of the show. My but digs, Jake, obviously being a 2022 release, mm. this film will not be on the poster behind me. Would no. you include The Stranger in your 1100 films to watch? Uh, I'm going to add the second dig of the night. Could be the last one. Never know. But uh, no, I would not put it in my 1100 films. You must watch before you die. There's a lot of... We've talked about this quite a few times on the show. We've done films like... Animal Kingdom, mm-hmm. Knit Ram. We uh, we never actually done it before, but Hounds of Love is one we both yeah. really adore the filmmaking in that film. Australia loves its criminals, its anti-heroes. This is sort of, I think, it fits right into that, that pact, that grouping, if you will. It would be a nice triple feature of Australian criminals and whatnot. But the film itself, I, I wouldn't put it on top, so to speak. I, mm. It's an important story. We'll get into that story and whether it should have been told and the real life story it's based around, of course. But um, yeah, I I don't think I'd put it on my poster. I, don't, I wouldn't call this a must watch, so to speak. But we can get into why later. Is it? Would you put it on your poster? No. no. Same. Very similar rationale. Okay. So that is fair enough. Um, but yeah, like you said, we'll talk a little bit more about that in the second half of the show. Mm. Jake, what have you caught in the last week? Uh, caught a little bit, shockingly. I did catch the director's other film, Acute Misfortune. I'll talk a bit about that mm-hmm. later. I'll save it for last, the Thomas M. Wright film. I saw off another Netflix thing that I saw, because, of course, The Stranger is a Netflix film. I watched the first few episodes of Blockbuster. I did too. Oh, there so you go. We can both uh, is, wait. is it a Superstore ripoff? Um, jeez, probably a... <laughs> I would say it's you like. A, I'm pretty sure you like that show. I quite like a lot. Superstore. Yeah, yeah. Just to be clear, I've watched the first two episodes of. Ah, uh, I watched. So. I think I watched the first. I've, I've seen a little more than you have. 
Um, it, uh, not that it has drastically changed from the first two episodes. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, like, and, uh, no, I, I say that because, you know, you've got two very, con- like, it's got all of the reasons that it should probably have stuff going for it. It's right, got, the ingredients to a, to a fun, successful sitcom. Um, you know, I mean, you've got um, Melissa Fumero from mm. uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and... Randall Park. Yeah. Yeah. From, uh, well, he's probably, like best known now for his MCU role, right? Um, yeah, he's been, you know, the Ant-Mans and the WandaVision. Yeah, and, and I mean, always, is it Always Be My Maybe? That's a pretty oh, successful, yeah, yeah. fun um, rom-com. Big, yeah. Um, so I think that I was sitting there going, oh, it'd be pretty compelling. But yeah, I think Superstore Ripoff is <laughs> probably even being nice. To, I, re- I read to that somewhere else because I haven't seen Superstore, but I was like, ah, oh, fair enough. Look, Superstore admittedly never really exceeds like the B rating, but it never really falls below like a C plus. Like it's a good, sh- it's a good show. Okay, it's funny. It has funny moments in it. Um, and it has honestly, it has a really strong ensemble group. Mm. Of kind of no names, which is kind of what makes it more compelling and interesting, you know. Brooklyn Nine Nine, everyone like people knew who Andy Samberg was going into sure. that show, yeah. and although you know it's very funny and very successful, it does have a lot of very experienced comedic performers mm. in it. Um, and that's just like Samberg's only one of them. Half the cast in that is seasoned either SNL performers mm. or or um or vice versa. So. To see when that show comes and be successful, you're not really surprised by it. Which I, I always am a sucker for the ones that have kind of more no names. That's probably why. Like, I mean, Zoe Deschanel was known was the Bill in New Girl, but the right. rest of the cast were no names at the time, mm. um, and got their fame from these sitcoms that get their fame from their sitcom is kind of always mm. more interesting. But yeah, it's the writing's a bit direct. Um, the the exposition in the first episode is a bit ridiculous. <laughs> I think. Look, uh, I think the problem is a lot of that exposition, like the the fact they got to get it straight out the door. The Netflix jokes, the self referential, <laughs> but secretly they're just ads for their own shows. Jokes yeah. they got to get them out of the way. The thing that really bugs me, and I should have known. I mean, the, I, I watched the trailer when that came out, and they were talking about it. And I was like, okay, I, I'm, I wasn't surprised you find out, but I just. Mm this kind of subgenre of sitcoms that I think is becoming more and more popular, which I just can't stand, are the, mm. these, these valley, non-sequitur comedies, kind of like Love, which I have a soft spot for Love, the Netflix series, but then something like um, Afterlife, Ricky Gervais, where like, that that shows what, like the, each season's like three hours long and half of that runtime is them walking down pathways making random rants about, you know dominoes or just random things you know what i mean just non-sequitur useless has serves nothing to the overall story Mm -hmm. dialogue that's meant to be funny because oh it's it's a you know it's randall park riffing and that with like all the characters are very one-dimensional and so much of the the show actually doesn't take place in the blockbuster it takes place at the local party store or outside in a feeding area or in an apartment. It's like so and much of the show that its entire advertisement and marketing was based around the iconography of Blockbuster with the vibrant blue and yellow palette and look how nostalgic it is being in these aisles full of DVDs. Most of the show doesn't take place in the building. Yeah, and I, and to be, and I agree. What you're talking, you know, talking about that 
the context-based humor it's like we wanted to see sort of stuff that we see in like clerks mm. where we we, yes, we see exactly. these, these sequences there um i think that's what jay is the one who works at the video store right with um and um it's the sort of the the dynamic there where he's like having to service people and he's so inconvenienced mm. by helping people and you know you talk about the, the even superstore superstore has so much dependent on like it, it what i like about that show mm. is it runs for what five maybe six seasons and they rarely leave the store in the right. first three or four seasons like We'll get like the occasional excursion out. It's that office, like you said, it's the office based year. It's the mm. strength of the office. Yeah. How many of the episodes in the earlier seasons, in particular, are actually just situated in the office? Well, and even I, towards the end, mo- still most of the show oh. isn't that same. There's a few times where, the, yeah, they go to like Florida and they're in different, like, like more often than not, or not more often than not, but like, yeah, in the later seasons, they're leaving the office more. But it still primarily takes place in that location. And I think with The Office, because uh, I did directly compare it to The Office in that, number one, it probably should have gone the route of uh, you know, a mockumentary style where it is the last blockbuster in the world. So you have people reporting it and how, maybe how miserable everyone is. Or you know, if you want to go that route where it's like there's seven different quirky characters all working there, which, by the way, it would have made way more sense to make your quirky characters the regular visitors instead of being like, oh, well, there's seven people that are all, I guess, on a full-time salary that are just working all the time. That makes no sense at all. Like, there's an episode, I can't remember if you've seen it or not, where he has to fire someone. Yeah. And like, okay, that's a little, yeah, there's a little Office-esque, and I kind of like it, but it just, it all wraps up way too cleanly, and it doesn't, it, it, I don't know. And I come from this perspective of having done the blockbuster, you know, Docker X rental a couple of years ago, which I did laugh, because the photo of the blockbuster they show, four minutes into the show, they show... The Morley store, which so they actually did their research and showed an image of what was the actual second to last blockbuster, which is the one 30 minutes up the road from us. So I, I thought that was pretty nifty that they mm. did that. But that being said, I think there's so much untapped potential with the idea of the the over the hierarchy and the, and the corporate side of it, where it's like, oh, they're just gone after the first episode. Yeah. So now Randall Park has to do it all himself, which is nifty, I guess. He goes from being a loser to now he has to sort of run the store and do that whole thing. But it gets bogged down in the whole, like, oh, well, he's in love with this co-worker. Yeah. And, and that's going to be a series very, on arc. It's like, it's a very on. And you know what the funny thing is? I think that, the, for me, the pilot lacked all subtlety. Mm. That it's not even the, you know, and I could, I'll could i compare it to a, a ton of different um sitcom pilots mm. in which all of them have a main character normally get introduced to the girl of interest. Yeah. But by the end of the first episode, you don't know that both parties are interested. Whereas the end of the first episode of blockbuster, you know, both parties are into each other. <laughs> whereas like normally it's that complete and utter like square one sort of thing, or mm. it's a, it's a, not a romantic attraction. It's a it's a sexual attraction. It's the interest. Like I'm into that person. Yeah. I want to pursue that person, and that becomes a season long art. That's a that's what it is in in season one of Community. But it gets murky. It gets it takes a back seat because you're trying to develop all the characters systematically, so you mm. buy into this group of seven people. And I think the way Harmon tackles it, even in a simple like not just that, but in Rick and Morty, how he develops every family member mm. over the course of a season. 
um, is very impressive. Um, I want to give them the benefit of doubt of, you know, we've only seen the opening to it. So you start with your one-dimensional characters, and you're right. Hopefully, they all get a lot more interesting. The dynamics get more, um, not convoluted, but, you know, layered and, and, and intriguing that we start to really like these characters. But for a show like this that, again, is so based on the blockbuster iconography, everyone's going to watch this. So why not start with something a little more interesting? Don't go for the, the most obvious will they won't their relationship arc it's i think the big one yeah. is yeah like you said that there's no there's no dynamic between blockbuster regulars which mm. when you're on your last legs as a business those regulars uh, they're the uh, lifeblood they're the lifeblood and they're also they're actually the source of probably some of your greatest comic comical scenarios yeah cuz they can that be dynamic, the real wacky characters yeah, the, the dynamic between your regulars and your staff because it's not a big store like in Superstore where you just get infinite different faces coming mm. in and there's very few regulars. Whereas in a blockbuster, because the whole point of you being is this local boat business that's mm. on its last legs. It's the out. same people going every week. Wait, it yeah. makes perfect sense. And even, I, I feel this might be the third episode, so I don't want to spoil it, but it's like they introduce a character, Hollywood Harold, which, oh, that's fantastic. He dies before they even introduced. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah. well, there you go. It's like that would have been a perfect character. I know that <laughs> he comes in every week and he's really funny and he maybe has these quirks, but he's into really old time. He feels like there are so many things you can do with that character. Yeah, and it's like oh, but he's dead. He's he's on the TV and he's dead. And and I like what they do with um. I think it's Carlos. It's like okay, well, it turns out that he, he that's how he learned English, and that's a really important person. And the show was really important to him growing up and watching films. I love that aspect of it. I love the fact that Randall Park can go to regulars and know exactly which film will speak to them in terms of going through a breakup. Or going, that stuff's perfect, but they don't do it nearly enough. Yeah, I just yeah, I'm a little I'm worried. It's the party friend for me that mm. really bogged down those first two episodes. Because I didn't find this oh, character. Oh, that guy, yeah. He's not remotely interested. I think it was his Party Pete or something like that. I can't even remember <laughs> Party Pete. can't remember his name off the top of my head. But he's just such a one-note nothing character. Mm. Except his daughter works there and it's like the way to keep them close. Yeah. Working in this dead mall. Like, well, that, she's that's... like such an over-the-top one-dimensional, I hate working here sort yeah. of person. There's just not Where a lot... There's just mm. not a lot of the great... Like, none of the characters have extreme extreme personalities that are funny, mm. but they are in community where they're all, like... In the first episode, they're basically seven psychopaths <laughs> sitting at a table <laughs> with extreme personalities. Yet, because they're so entertaining in that first episode, you then allow yourself to go through Jeff in the first year at Greendale and, and get to know each of the characters for their more, like, intricate nature and you're like oh they're still nuts but they're like right. likable yeah whereas they're just like you said they're just so plain jane there's just it's, no interest the personalities yeah very very bare bones so it's like they don't take that far enough but then you just mentioned and i think that was a light bulb moment for me as well is when you watch these other shows and the character developments slowly happen like even something like bojack where it's like princess carolyn she doesn't have this big like. Oh, I was wrong and you were right, and you know this was my real emotional. It it they they pepper it in later episodes. Yeah, the character is just the character, 
until it, like this big slow unveil later yeah. in the show. But in this show, you have all the characters having their big emotional realization in every episode at the end of every episode. Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong, like you said, we're in early days and I will outright say that the first five or six episodes of Bojack I didn't really like that much. Sure. It was until that PC episode I went, Oh, there's something a little bit more going on here. Um for but, me. But imagine if she had that moment that, you know, you are now forty moment in episode one and episode two and episode three yeah. and episode four. You'd just be like, okay, well this is just the structure. Yeah. There's no like development of the character where you you think you know a person and then you realize something else about them. Yeah. And I don't think the show is giving itself enough room to breathe. It just Man, feels I gotta so watch that. I gotta safe. Watch that show again. It's been so long. Oh, it's great. I rewatched uh, which episode of Bojack I rewatched recently. It's it's great. It's it's excellent. But it's like one of those things. It's like I I want to watch it, but then it's like then I got shows like Better Call Saul that deserve that. Oh come on, mate. First watch. Get onto it. Yeah. <laughs> Can I only watch so much? I know, it's tough. It is tough. But, um, yeah, look, I will finish it, Blockbuster. I think there's enough there for me to, to give it more of a chance. I only watched a few episodes when I had some time last night. But I am worried because I, I just don't see how they're going to elongate this structure. I really hope they do more of that office balance, and not even just the mockumentary style. The office humor is almost entirely based around the interpersonal relationships and dynamics of the characters. We laugh because Michael hates Toby. We laugh because Jim is pranking Dwight. Mm. That's where the humor comes from. And here, it's all non sequiturs. It's him talking about things that happened 30 years in the past. And it's like, this isn't a stand-up routine. These are characters mm. that should have dynamics that are funny to watch play out. And, you know, like we were saying before, with having, you know, six, seven different employees at once, I can look past that. If I, go, I guess they have enough money. This dying company have enough money to employ seven full-time employees. They don't even have that many customers in there. <laughs> I could look past that, even though the it would have been so much more clever to have the regulars be in there. But but that's also the thing is the regulars they can't do anything about. If your regulars are really quirky, annoying characters, they're funny to us but annoying to the characters. It doesn't matter because they need to be there to keep the business in place. Yeah, agreed. But if your employees, who your protagonists need to fire one of them in order to solve his problem, and half of them are either piss boring or just actively don't like being there, then we don't care what the outcome is. Yeah. And it's an odd one because you're 100% right because that dynamic would be really interesting in this particular situation because mm. it's like a... And not everyone like in these business or office um, comedy mm. skits have to work in the office or or work in, in, in the superstore. No, right. no. They can be the patrons because, I mean, that's like the dynamic. I mean, that's what Cheers was. Yeah. Like, three of them work at the bar and the rest of them are patrons of the bar. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, it's... it's That's why I find it really confusing. Um, or in How Me Your Mother, they're all just patrons of the bar. They're right. not even... They don't, none of them work at the bar. And it's, like, really interesting because it's... Yeah, that dynamic becomes, like, a very interesting thing you could explore. That, like, maybe if he was into someone but it was a patron, not a person that worked yeah. there. No, that would have been way clever. I mean, like, it, it's just a more interesting dynamic because they're not just there the whole time. And I get, yeah, they're trying to abide by this sitcom thing of, okay, well, here are all the characters. They're here all the time. They're always interacting. But it's like, if they were patrons, if they were people, because, like, you know, when I went to fan base, I went every week for however many months. Well, I mean, you rent, you got a choice when you were at Blockbuster, one, three a week. 
that yeah. was right one day three days or, or, or a seven week. days yeah. yeah i mean it writes itself i feel like yeah and and you know what's funny the third episode that you you're next to watch they introduce a new character he's an unpaid intern it's like why do 12 people need to be working here I feel like I'm getting really nitpicky. Yeah, We've only no, watched so much true, of it. It's kind of true, though, because it's, but, like, because it's one of those things where it's like these they feel like they're just going for the generic office comedy stuff. And The office, they all have to work there because they so scarily have regular visitors. You have, like, Jan. So, okay, maybe she's in, like, 15 of 20 episodes. Yeah. That's fine. But, but then it also gets yeah. to a point where it's, like, these Patreon characters... There, there doesn't have to be a timeline for when they're at the store and when they're not at the store, and very quickly mm. that time dissipates because we're not that fixated on has it been three days are they going to return there? <laughs> like eventually, we're not the characters watching, like yeah. enough, and they're like, "Hey, I've got nothing else to do. I'll just help you do this thing for this episode." There, there'll be that one YouTube guy who does a video essay on why Blockbuster is the worst show ever made. No, you know, She Hulk would be the episode before that. But then he, yeah, he analyzes all of the movies that the patrons are renting based on the likelihood of whether they're one day or three day hires and whether it's realistic yeah. for them to come back. You know that one person would yeah, do that. Would. Would. <laughs> so they saved themselves from that, I suppose. Yeah. But um, anyway, so there but you go. That's like cool said, that we both caught it. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, yeah I, I will watch the first season with reluctance, but I don't have high hopes. No. Oh, we'll, we'll get there. Well, yeah. The only other thing, I, I wouldn't even say that I watched it so much. I attended the WA Wind Symphony, did Ooh. a show on Friday night called A Walk in the Skies, which was a two-and-a-half-hour live musical um, you know, performance representation of Joe Hisachi's uh, soundtracks from the Studio Ghibli films. Mm. So it was a huge array from you know, Spirit of the Way, How's Moving Castle... My neighbor to Totoro, Kiro's, uh, sorry, Kiki's Delivery Service, which I've seen very few of these, unfortunately. I've, I think Spirited Away is actually the only one I've seen of this mm. list, but um, just just marvelous, just marvelous soundtracks. It was great to listen to them, you know, in in the context of knowing generally what these stories are about and the the um, the adventurous, creative side of Studio Ghibli films. Yep. Um, but being able to just hone in on the musical aspect and the Japanese influences, of course, that come in. and Yeah, no, I just wanted to give that a shout-out because that was absolutely fantastic. And I need to watch more Ghibli films. I'll get onto it very That's soon. nice. Yeah. No, it was fun. It was fun. What about you, Zeke? What have you been um, Look, watching? pretty quiet week for me, apart from the film of the week. I, I yep. only caught uh, one other DC AMU film, which I haven't logged yet, but I'll do that now. AMU? Uh, Animated... DC- Something universe. I think it is the something something universe. I don't know how it works. Animated movie universe. Oh, okay. Um, I can see that. But um, yeah, I watched Justice League War, which is the latest one in that sort of trajectory. I talked about uh, Justice League Flashpoint Paradox last week, and oh, yeah. um, that was the first. This was the sequel film in this universe. It was fine. It was okay. I don't know how many more of these I'm going to watch. Apparently, the next <laughs> the next one's on Amazon it. Prime, and I got to pay for it, so I'm not going to. Oh, really? Do that? Um, I don't own it, do I? Very unlikely. Son of Batman. <laughs> um, no, I've got um. Oh well, we talked about it last week. I got Under the Red Hood. That's like the main one that I have. And the only other thing I did manage to watch both seasons of this on Amazon Prime wow. was okay. uh, the Greg Daniels comedy series Upload. Oh. Um. 
Which what, what is this? Greg Daniels. It was the latest from Greg Daniels. Who I thought you were going to say did, the space show um, that he did. Upload. Okay. Okay. Um, I've, I've never heard of it. Well, obviously, Greg Daniels is known for making, like, Parks and Rec. Yeah. And, um, I don't know, did he do The Office? Was he the Am I, Office too? I thought that's... Let me confirm this. Greg Daniels. I know him for Parks and Rec. Yeah, he did Space Force and The Office. Yeah, and Upload. There you go. There you go. Yeah, okay. I haven't heard Up- of the show. Yeah, so, um... It came out a couple of years ago, the first season, 2020, um, and it's uh, this sort of future sci-fi comedy world where people are uploaded to a... Mm. a um, <laughs> has real, like, when you watch the trailer, it's got, like, it feels like Alexander Payne's uh, downsizing. Oh, no. In terms of... <laughs> yeah, but to be fair, the trailer of downsizing looks kind of fun. Yeah, no, it's just, it's after the first 30 minutes. Yeah, when you're like, oh, what's happening now, here? Now, to defend Upload, I like... I don't mind Upload. Right. It's fine. It has, I think, ten episodes in its first season, seven in its second season, and they did get greenlit for a third season because okay. the ending of season two was a bit like... What? Like, it was like... It was it's very strange. abrupt cut. Okay. Um, it was a weird cutting point. Mm. Um, okay. I feel like season three then's probably not going to be. Um, it's going to be over a really short period of time in the film, but it'll be multiple episodes. Um, like in the in the show, yeah, it'll be yeah. a short period of time. So is it like events. so people? So basically, what happens is, uh, people. So our main character is a is a gaming coder. Right. Oh, sorry, he's just a coder, and. He's, He's involved gamer. in a suspicious car accident in which uh, his girlfriend's family, who are very wealthy, choose to upload, and which is kind of mostly mm. for the bougie rich people. Right. Okay. Basically, you die in real life, but then you live a, for eternity in this computer server. Okay. Um, Can they communicate between each other? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So there's a direct link between both worlds. So basically, where old people go is they can choose to do this. I mean, they can still choose to die normally. Yeah. But um, so the rich family is uh, is the Oculus virtual desktop app, <laughs> and the interconnect the interworld is Premiere Pro. Yeah, and then the communicator is Steam VR. I I really hope to God there is one person listening to this podcast that even remotely has an idea of what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, but basically, yeah, like this is sort of, and we find out obviously his death was like suspicious. Right, something was a. One or the other with that mm. one, and look, it's uh, I the best I could go for is I've watched it very quickly. I've watched both seasons within the last day, because right. um, they're like mostly thirty minute episodes. So I just binged all seventeen of them yep. in the last day and a bit. It was fine. It was a kind of a cute romance. Romance of some cute moments. Didn't get a lot of laughs out of it. I don't think it was trying to be like. Overly funny. Yeah. Sometimes it's a very Jim Carrey-esque humour, which is not my cup of tea. Oh, okay. Um, like the over Jim Carrey sort of stuff. Like the over the, the top the mask, performance. The Liar Liars. Oh, okay. I'm not a big that fan. I know You don't like Liar Liar? Not really. I've seen bits <sighs> of it. I know. Everyone else is in there. Yeah. Right. Um, I think that Might. it's perfectly adequate, cute sci-fi sort of fun thing it doesn't right. hit any emotion like super heavy beats 
it's not trying to be super heavy, I don't think. Um, doesn't even remotely come near, and I'm not even a big Office fan, but yeah. I'm, I know for a fact The Office is a way better constructed uh, thing, um, uh, way built constructed show. Right. I mean, I think Parks and Rec is superior, but that's that's... <laughs> I think that's a testament more to the that that is like SNL actors at their at their peak. Sure. So, okay, um, you're not really selling me on this up. No, nah, it was fine. There's some fun moments. It's a cool bit of sci-fi comedy, you know, like this world in which you can be uploaded to this utopia that's plagued with Wally-esque corporation ads. <laughs> Um, has the same sort of just the metaverse um, overtness <laughs> as, as Wally's capitalistic notions. I think dystopian views on, mm. on capitalism. Yeah, Wally's well, getting say, a Criterion release. It's the first Pixar film to get a Criterion release, as it should. It's the best I, one. I, I like it. I like where your head's at, Zeke. It's very. There's good. no debate. Yeah. Oh. I anyone that Take says that, Stephen. Anyone else that <laughs> says any others with with Ratatouille. Or Toy Story three being the only two that are remotely close. I like I like that. Is it? Um, are you messy with me? No, <laughs> it's legit. okay. Good, good. I think Wally is the perfect. I've gotten so much crap for the last like year about me praising Ratatouille, Wally, Up, and Toy Story three, putting those four on a pedestal. That's it. They're the four. They thank you. They are literally I'm glad the someone four. agrees with me. <laughs> that period. That's the golden age. Right it is. There. It generally is. Thank it's, you. You know, I mean, I know Cars 2 is in there too. (laughs) (laughs) Immediately, (laughs) down at Cars 2. It's like, you're up here, is it? But yeah, they're they're the best best films. But uh, it doesn't surprise. It deserves it. It's the best Pixar film. But yeah, Upload was fine. It was... Okay, fair enough. I was going to watch Peripheral. That's the yeah the one Chloe, I thought Chloe you were Grace Moretz one. That's what I, I think thought that you might were going to watch on the list. I do like this VR sci-fi stuff. Right. You want you want I got the Quest Two here for you. I know. You want to you want to put it on? Upload your body. Yeah. Ready Player One. It. I know. I hear I hear you can get some legs soon in that metaverse. <laughs> Forever it making like, fun it were of interesting Mark jokes, but definitely had the sort of the colorful tonality of downsizing. But with much clearer story structures, okay, that's good. directions, <laughs> and no weird commentary. After in the Invisibles, <laughs> that film, man, downside. What a wild way! Because that was one of those films where and I know we're getting sidetracked. But that was one of those films where yeah, the trailer looked like pretty interesting. Just looked like okay. a f- kind of a fun time, yeah. and it's Alexander Payne. Yeah, my God, and. <laughs> The first half an hour, you're like, yeah, this is interesting. This is great. And, oh, my God, she's going to abandon him. That's insane. And and by the end, it's... <laughs> and like, it looks what like he's, smoothie? like, trying to find, like, that, like, enjoyment in life. And if you watch the trailer, and I remember the trailer, too, and it's yeah. like, it's like, oh, and Christoph Waltz. And it's that him with him slouching at the door while the song... <laughs> and then the days go by. <laughs> 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 the most like early Audis trailer music with um How Do You Like Me Now? Like that on every trailer. Yeah. Oh my god. And I'm like watching it, I'm like, yeah, this seems like a chill time. I mean yeah. a little bit a step away from Descendants where you've got Clooney breaking down in front of Nebraska. His... Nebraska Was that after? No, that, that was, was before. It was Nebraska before. Was before. Or like 
sideways where he's just like running down the hill with the bottle of wine like <laughs> like i didn't think pain wasn't capable of dry comedy but then you watch that film and you're just confused what happened it's and not I, even dry comedy fair, it's I'll, I'll... just like someone it's the most like sobering film that that just shotguns the 200 year old wine and out of nowhere, just because it's the most bizarre film you've ever seen. Yeah. That's well, a upload, analogy, upload but, yeah. I admit, the, I think season one had a very clear structure, and yep. it worked really well. It definitely pushed the romance side, but it was more compelling, interesting romance, because obviously a romance occurs between the main character, who's an upload, a computer program, mm. and, and the angel, so the caretaker of, of these sort of uploaded people. They're like customer right. service agents that service these people. Not related to the girlfriends or the family. No. Okay. So it's gotcha. a good triangle. Mm. And of course, the triangle occurs because he's under the financial dependership of, of the girlfriend's rich family. Yeah. So ends up being this really interesting dynamic. Second season, uh, <laughs> uh. as someone who just rushed through it, it does have funny moments. Um,. But I think really lost. They introduced these. Obviously, they're in this very tech-dependent world more so than now. Like phones are like you hold an L shape on your hand, and it's a square that's created. Oh, on your okay. Hand. It's like a hologram. It's like a hollow hollow phone, but AR it's embedded thing. into your hand. And obviously, then there's this organization of people that are anti-technology and live out and grow in the fields, and they're apparently seen as terrorists. The Amish. The so they're called Luds oh, okay. in this. I don't know why they're called Luds. Um, but Imagine calling someone a terrorist because they don't have Snapchat. Yeah. I'll get, we'll get into that stage. But it's just interesting. It was got, it's got very murky. Um, and then came back to the romance thing in like the last episode and a half. And I was like, yeah, yeah that was... I'll watch the third season. I've got nothing else on, but I'm not like, oh boy, I can't wait for the You're third season. You're not that season. excited for it, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm just that's looking fair for that that's Westworld sci-fi experience that I got out of the first season of Westworld. Now, yeah, so they, they... It's coming up now that, that it's cancelled. No, Westworld's done. It finished. Well, season. that's what I mean, is that the last few days, like all these articles, oh, Westworld cancelled, Westworld cancelled. Yeah, because I the way My you were opinion, talking about it was that it was like... It I always thought they, they were openly like, that was their last season. Yeah, interesting. So maybe they first planned to have more seasons, but the way they advertised season four was very clearly the final season. Wow. And okay. it's considerably weak. Well, all of the, not to spoil anything, but a vast majority of the cast die in the right. last two episodes. <laughs> um, so they yeah, go, they go where, full where Game of Thrones on it. They just okay. purge everyone. Um, yeah. Did That's I talk about the then. finale House of Dragons? It was fine. <laughs> I didn't, did you even talk about House of Dragon? Period. Oh well, yeah, I watched that the last couple of weeks. <laughs> watched the whole thing. That's right, because you, you had watched all of it up until the last episode when that was coming out, and then we said, "Oh, well, next week we will talk about the show in its entirety." And I don't think we, you ever actually did. Yeah, and I actually can tie it in with another show I've caught in the last week because you watched the Lord of the Rings one as well. Yeah, I've only watched the first episode of the okay. Rings of Power. Unfortunately, I just haven't had the time. But the Rings of um, Power. I'll just quickly get House of Dragons up because this is a problem with once again with um, Letterbox. You have to use the what's the one, the TV oh, show the, one. Yeah, it's serialized. So million, I pretty much jumped off serial. I'm just back yeah, to TV so, time. So obviously, House of Dragons set 270 years before Game of Thrones started. Of course. Um, 
Yeah, of course. Just casually. 272 years. <laughs> yeah, like, obviously, yeah. Now, look, I'm not going to lie. The show does... Like, these... Cra- there are two characters that play the main... Uh, the lead female, who is named Renera from Tar- right. the House Targaryen. The, the bleach blonde ones, right. Jake. I'm talking to... <laughs> a non- they're like the pale white hair. But okay. Millie Alcock... The Aryan. Millie Alcock... <laughs> Millie Alcock is a... <laughs> Say that in 20... <laughs> 22 year old actress this is from Australia and I've seen her in two shows in the last couple of weeks okay so I've seen her in, in this and then an Australian sh- road trip show oh. um, called Evasion I want to say it was called Upright <laughs> Upright uh, okay starring well, her on, and Tim on... Tim Minchin oh was uh, this on Stan yeah Upright uh, it's on Binge oh okay and it basically An Australian follows... show not on stand. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, I know, right? And I started. I watched this with Lucinda's family. So oh, this was. Uh, there you go. I ended up sitting down watching this. Um, they I'd missed the first bit, but I've now gone back and watched the, the episode. Yeah, missed. Yeah. Um, very easy to follow though. Uh, basically, story of a musician. Dan is like a musician who's like depressed. Takes his mother's piano across the country. From New South Wales to Cottesloe, Western Australia. Oh, and might wow. I add, I knew it was Cottesloe without them even saying it was Cottesloe. And then oh, everyone man. around me was like, how did you guess that so quick? And I'm like, well, I have lived here my whole life. Like, it was the trees <laughs> and the hills that gave it away. It was yeah, immediately yeah. like, that's Cottesloe. They're, we- they're talking about how wealthy they are. That's Cottesloe. Like, oh, and also they Jake, don't Jake was there the flying his drone as well. Yeah. So... <laughs> And that stars this this Millie Alcock and um, Tim Minchin. Okay. Now, look, Tim Minchin, don't really care for his... You know, he's a musical comedian like Bo Burnham. Right, okay. Um, and this he went on this... He basically left that life and he's become the serious musician and a serious actor. His acting is okay. <laughs> um, Harry Styles-esque. Yeah, I'd probably say... Not the same caliber as Bo Burnham. So, like, I think right. Bo Burnham can act. Sure. Um, yeah, he can direct as well. And he can direct. Yeah. Um, these guys are probably in the yeah, the tier, the tier <laughs> below. Um, but it obviously stars her in it. And I think this was a couple years before her, or probably around the same time they were shooting House of Dragons. Because it's really weird in House of Dragons. The the way they play around with age is kind of silly. Okay. I know they jump back and forth. Show. Or... No, well, the first four episodes take place at one period of time. And then the next six take place 20 years later okay so that's when they switch Renera's. but the problem is millie alcock plays a 14 year old in the first episode and then by the end of her time she's 20 i think she's 22 23 mm. which is what she she is in real life she's 22 okay so at the time so she, she would have been played about 20 she was pushing the four i think she looked too old for a 14 year old mm. but then it's weird because I don't think she looks old enough to be a 22-year-old, 23-year-old. She's right. very young. Um, whereas in Upright, she's playing a th- she's playing a 13-year-old. Oh, wow. And she would have been 20 at the time. She does not look 13. So I don't know why. that. Like, what? she's very talented. Why do people it? just keep... I thought we yeah. learned from Strange Things, right? We could use... We could find... Kids, kids can act. Kids can act. <laughs> Um, but it's, a, it's a it's a the budget they don't but, they want to work fourteen hours a day that's why they yeah, have, they have to hire and, adults and not to jump between yeah. the two shows too much I liked Upright it was a fine family drama very classic Australian family drama yeah season one ends 
very feels like it has a nice ending, very beautiful. Like, oh, it's a piano, so you know there's going to be a beautiful intergenerational piano play sequence. Very moving, very standard. Kind of, honestly, felt like that, like, quintessential sort of student film with a lot of money because it was like the story just felt... I mean, how many student films have we seen? From very good filmmakers Uh that have been centred around family pianos. (laughs) They just feel like (laughs) the most symbolic family image. A piano. It's <laughs> a lot of yeah. That's it's a lot of films. I can, that... I can name like we literally talked about the piano. <laughs> it's like, um, it's but a good instrument. Yeah. It ends really. And you know what the funny thing is? Guess what? It's gonna have a season two, and I don't know what the season two is because right. like. So the whole point is Minchin's going across the country because his mum's dying. Right. And spoiler, the end of the season, she's got cancer. She's terminally ill. She dies. <gasps> But she rekindles. He rekindles his broken relationship with his brother and his family for events that I won't. I won't talk about because it is a good enough season. I would say watch it. It's a good yeah. bit of Australian television, and it really showcases Australia, which I kind of like. Cool. Yeah, it. The they spend a lot of time of in the middle of WA, mm. like in no man's land, which is like really cool. I always like these contemporary films that show literally how not like most a road trip across us is like nothing (laughs) after a certain point and they go across the nullarbor like it's a it's a full it's a legitimate australiana road trip well that's what excited me i know no one listening to the show knows what evasion is i know (laughs) i know that but that was what was so exciting about that was like an extension of a road trip it's almost like a real-time road trip it was renowned to to wa specifically but it was like we're gonna go up to carragini and back and you know, skirt the whole state. And that is exciting. Yeah. To, like, see your country. Yeah. Yeah, and... Sounds like they Obviously, it. picks up Alcock on the way um, through different events. But the, the the what I find really interesting was, yeah, they get to the end of the season, and then I find out that there's going to be a season two, and I'm like, what story's left to tell? <laughs> is this the case that no, they got be positive rap? Story. Because it did get a lot of positive rap yeah. at the time. It just put together... What, are they going to go back? Like, <laughs> WA to <laughs> New South Wales again? Yeah. Um, but it's very, very interesting. As for House of Dragons, the aging thing's really frustrating. Like I said, some characters, when they do that 20-year time jump, change actors. Mm. And then Matt Smith just doesn't age in the show. Like, oh, okay. he's there the whole time. Doesn't mm. age. That um, would break the immersion. It's like, if you really jump, bad. If you really want to jump forward in time, but you have the and same. And they don't even age, like, they don't age him up, which is funny because his brother, I can't remember what his name is. I forget his acting name. Right. His actor's name. His uh, acting name. Acting name. Uh, I pa- hear, oh, Paddy I, Paddy Constantine. I hear by Goa. Who I've seen Patty. in a lot of UK based stuff. Might yeah. might I say, he's probably got a the performance of his career in this season of it. He's very good. Mm. Um, and I've seen him in a lot of things. Like he's in a couple of the Edgar Wright films. Like he's in Hot Fuzz as one of the Andes. Oh, that's cool. Um, but yeah, it's like he has a really good thing as as Matt Smith's brother, and they age him. Like crazy, yeah. Matt Smith. I don't age at all. Oh, maybe he's in his contract. <laughs> it's very odd. It was very odd. Um, it's fine. Everyone else is like, "Oh boy, we're gonna see dragons killing each other." I don't care about like the big right, CG the battles side of it. Yeah. For me, Game of Thrones was always about the, the the writing and how strong it was, and the manipulation and all of the behind. The- yeah. It's the succession of the medieval times. <laughs> It's like that is something I've been rewatching a lot lately. Oh, it's so good! It just is. There's this, there's a scene in the third season, and not I don't think a lot of people point to it, but it's a scene where 
Sarah Snook and, and Brian Cox, are, they're just talking. I think it's in the third episode. And it's his speech of, you know, being able to bypass the law because the law is people and I can handle people. It's that speech. Them just in that scene. It's the most boring, seemingly boring, you know, one-on-one dialogue exchange. Nothing's happening. Maybe there's a firecrack in the background. But just the two of them acting... It's it's like I the scene ends and I'm just like I lean back I'm like Jesus Christ like it's not even like an intense conversation mm. it's just two people just knocking it out of the park yeah yeah that's a and it's show. it's amazing how enticing it is because they don't try and inundate you with business jargon you can understand everything that's going on mm. um it's almost like jarringly comprehensible yeah. like, oh my god look at these people are talking like absolute morons. But they're running the country. <laughs> they're running the world. <laughs> yeah. That's so good. Yeah. Oh, when's season it. four? It's around the corner. There's a teaser out. There's a teaser for it. Boy. Very excited. That's probably, Got yeah. to see more Tom in there. But that's all I've watched in the last week. Yeah, no. Well, I'll, I'll wrap up then. I'll talk about A Cue Misfortunes. Mm. Perfect segue into, I guess, it's not a director's corner, but Thomas Simright. We're going to talk about mm. his entire filmography here. These two films. <laughs> But it's interesting. So this is his debut film, 2018. Yes, 2018, based on events from 2008. That's that's where the confusion in my head. And it's on stand, so it's pretty easy to find. Mm-hmm. I reckon you've got to watch this film, Zeke. It's good. It's I liked it a lot. It It's sort of... You watch this and you're like, okay, I get why he was the choice to do The Stranger. Totally get it. It's got that, again, st- dry Australiana feel. Like It definitely reminds me of... like. Justin Cozell, like Nick Ram, and I haven't seen a lot of his films, but immediately got that sense of, like, okay, he knows how to portray this gritty side to it. But <clears throat> there's less of that tension from... It's, a, it's again, about a relationship between two guys, and it's mm-hmm. this real-life thing, and it's it's based on the Australian painter Adam Cullen and his um, biographer-slash-journalist Eric, Eric uh, Jensen, or Jensen, either way. Um... And it kind of, it felt a little Kaufman-esque in that sense, where this is a real-life story of him writing the biography of this person, but then the movie based on the book is about him writing that book. So it is kind of Kaufman-esque, adaptation-esque. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way they portray this, like, oh, again, you know, toxic masculinity and all of these elements through these two characters, and you kind of have that almost famous thing of the, is where is, where does the objectivity end? between these two people, one's meant to document the other, mm. and then, but they're being dragged into their world, and it's a bit more of a dangerous, gritty, angry world. There's a point where Eric accidentally gets shot in the leg, and that's like his first day out <laughs> doing the, the autobiography of this guy. Um, but I just, I thought it was like really interestingly explored, and mm-hmm. yeah, if you watch The Stranger, you can kind of see, because I did watch this first, like you misfortune, but knowing the plot of The Stranger, knowing it's about this, you know, male on male friend dynamic. Mm. I was like, okay, it's pretty clear what you know his uh, through line is between these two films. But I really loved it, and I love again the you have that tortured artist trope, if you will, where we're following an artist and like he, you know, he's he's rich and famous, but he has these heartaches and he's self pitying, and it kind of subverts that trope by having someone who's so not self aware about their own trauma in a sense and and it does dwell into the relationship between his parents and particularly his mum but 
it is all coded under this anger that he does eventually lash out on Eric from time to time. And it's, yeah, no, there's a lot of really fascinating exploration in that film. Hmm. So go and stand, watch it. It's really interesting. Little, little bit more stylistic. It does the four by three aspect ratio thing. Every now and then they'll have like a slow motion shot that's playing in reverse. So the waves are going backwards or they're watching something on TV, which I guess is like a commentary on them reflecting on the past otherwise i couldn't really tell you what the point of that was <laughs> stylism <laughs> stylism bro um but yeah no he's i this is a very interesting director to talk about i think now's a good time to talk about his other film well it's time for us to move into our <laughs> film of the week but jake what are we watching this week of the show zeke watching the stranger the stranger danger this is the largest missing persons case in the history of our state and is one of the largest in the history of our country at the time, detectives found insufficient evidence for him to be considered a person of interest. The whole body's gonna relax. Your feet, your knees, your hips, your stomach, your chest. Breathe in the clear air. Two strangers strike up a conversation on a long journey. One is a suspected and unsolved missing persons case, and the other is an undercover operative on his trail. Their uneasy friendship becomes the core of this tightly wrought thriller, which is based on the true story of one of the largest investigations and undercover operations in Australia. Hmm. Which is really funny, because that's a bit of a misdirect, isn't it? Because the two strangers that meet on the train, uh, on the bus... And not the two strangers that we really follow. Yeah, it is a bit of a misdirect. The in real life they met on a plane as well, which is although they kind of kind of address that. There's one shot later on. But yeah, no, there's a there's a little bit of a misdirect throughout this film, and I think it's because we don't have to get into it too much, but there is of course this is based on very real events. I'm talking about the Australian murderer Brett Peter Cohen. Or he's called Harry. Or sorry, Henry in this film. Called Henry. The abduction and murder of Daniel Walcombe, Walcombe who's uh, James Liston in this film. And he's a uh, 2003, although the film says 2002. There's a lot of like random name changes and details being skewed and changed. And it's all to do out of respect for the family who um, did not want this film made and are currently very outspoken about the film having been made at all. Um, so we can get into that conversation and what we think about that whole situation later, but... I mean, ultimately, you know, as much as we kind of teased at the start of this episode that we weren't huge on this film, you know, we neither of us put it on our poster, for example. I sort of made jokes about the title. Oh, The Stranger. Wow, that's a, what a, you know, what an inventive title. But I mean, the film does achieve what it fundamentally is trying to do, which is not to be a true crime documentary about all the specific details that led to the murder of this kid. 
it's obviously changing details to be respectful to the family, but it's ultimately about the, the psychology of these two characters and the friendship they build. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as the wider side of the, the, the you know, police and investigators trying to, you know, get a confession out of this man. I think it achieves that. And essentially, that is the most interesting part of the film, is the dynamic of these two characters. And there are some really great scenes where you, you, there are so many layers to the performance, especially for uh, Mark. We actually, I don't think we ever learn his real name, quote-unquote, in the film, it's just Mark. Mm-hmm. But that dynamic, I think, is really interesting. We can get into that. But otherwise, what was your general takeaway from the film, Zeke? I've, look, I have to commend aspects of the film and yeah we can obviously talk about the the real world um inspiration yep. behind the film and very uh, near and dear to us actually yeah well, it's a west australian based case isn't it yeah well i was my mum saw this so she was telling me about it before and i was like don't spoil it don't spoil it but she was telling me about the real life case and the fact that this guy was hiding out in Quinana. you know i was there two days ago picking up a couch like yeah <laughs> this is very close to well, home like the um Hounds of Love. Yeah. The Bernie exactly. Killers. That's in Coolblub. <laughs> yeah. We recognize these that's roads. Right yeah. next. That's uh, right next. To, I think they shot it in Fremantle, but it's set in Coolblub. Right, um, right, right, right. Well, even this film being shot, I think, in Adelaide or South Australia. Well, where my mum, when she was in her 20s, living in Willoughby, down mm. the road there, serial killer, killed yeah, like six women. Gosh. So, and then the whole thing, and um, I was actually having a conversation about um, Cottesloe um, mm. and how there's very few um, sort of bars and like night restaurants there and that's because of the the claremont killer the yeah, one who went yeah. and killed three that destroyed business in that area according to my boss my he God, was telling yeah. about that and now so they're doing the show they're doing the claremont serial killer, serial show. killer. Yeah. Um, yeah so it is interesting um obviously that that conversation but if we're talking about this film there the things mm. i liked i liked honestly i was gonna say how i liked how dry the film was mm. it was so plain mm. on the surface in the sense that everything was so straight the the police operation i think was one of the most f- authentic feeling um the scenes felt so authentic like right. i felt like i was sitting in the theater listening to the case being read out to me mm. it wasn't they weren't smart smarky quips or like little like you know we were watching see how they run a couple of weeks ago and it's like a yeah. very fictionalized murder mystery it's very and jokey it's and wordy and yeah, wordy and all the characters having fun the stakes aren't really there and this is not a neo noir this is a full blown criminal case mm. it it walks a very fine line between almost f- like it's going for the most authentic feeling story which even surpass the authenticity of something like Animal Kingdom, mm. which has that sort of that surreal underbelly to it. It does exist. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I there are cool. Would... There are really authentic. I mean, horrifying scenes in Animal Kingdom, which like sit with you. I mean, the opening scene when he's watching mm. Deal or No Deal, and yeah, it's almost like a black comedy though in those kinds of sections. Which yeah. I think that's where part of that style doesn't comes from. Um, but you're right. I think compared to all of those films, even some of the better ones, but it's a very, dr- it's emotionally very dry. And the yeah. fact that I mean, the way it looks is not very pretty. Everything's quite dark and moody and flat. Flat. Um, and I will give a shout out to the cinematographer. Not not just for the fact that I think Netflix 
completely ruins a films like this visuals uh, the visuals of a film like this because of the terrible um, bit rate. But uh, Sam Chiplin, who actually did um, like Dirt Music, which obviously was shot on the Broadway recording this very podcast, and Penguin Bloom and other random films like that, you would not associate with a film as kind of gritty looking as this. This one. isn't Screen WA though. This is just Screen Australia, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Screen Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, those are all WA films. No, why? Why can't we make grittier films like, <laughs> like that? This definitely walks a, a line of almost being Screen Western Australia, though, with how much it's set in yeah the WA. Well, yeah, how much is meant to be set in WA? Which, I don't. Think, I don't think they show any of it here, though. That's the only problem. Do you reckon? I it didn't sound like it when I was reading. Oh. I think it was all shot in Adelaide, which like, I can take it or leave it because like, yeah, that's disappointing in the sense that it would have been cool to see, you know, Quinana on the screen. For real, but also, I mean, they're already trying to distance themselves from the real story enough to not, you know, upset the family and 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 the local communities and that. So they might have been thinking about that when they decided to film. But I imagine the whole film in Adelaide. So it's a little disappointing, but I also get it. Yeah, yeah. But it did. It is really obviously. You know, this time last year we were talking about Nitram and you know yes. how that definitely, from a stylistic point of view, had a lot like a lot more overt things appearing, whereas this was very straight-laced. Like I said, the the I think the the one time you really get grounded in the reality in Nit Ram is when he's buying the guns, mm. and that whole 15-minute sequence, it's so just delivered like a transaction would be delivered yep. to show how accessible it was, and it works really effectively in that film. Whereas this, it's like the, we're we're basically following a case and we're trying to derive whether this person of interest did commit this crime. Mm. And obviously that's where a big part of the... I can see where the scrutiny comes in because of obviously event how events transpire and how it's almost leaned on the scenario, mm. the f- sort of the final scenario and what happens with characters. Um, but it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? I think... That's kind of where I just wonder, and look, I think I think the film is is good. I think it's well made. There's some great, there's some confident direction because again, in terms of talking about Thomas M. Wright, and there's a lot of this in Acute Misfortune as well. Just the confidence of um, he's the way he directs and edits scenes in the sense of you know starting a scene out on this like blurry figure, and as it comes into focus, we realize that it's Henry and he's sort of bobbing up and down. And then as the camera sort of cuts to wider and wider shots, you slowly realize, okay, we're we're in this area. There's other people. Oh, here's an exit sign. We're in a bus. I love when he does things like that Mm. in terms of sort of that environmental storytelling of just slowly unveiling where we are and revealing drip feeding information to the audience. I like those kinds of things. And again, I commend the tone because you're right. It's so dry and it's, it's kind of is refreshing in this day and age, with the amount of films that are coming out that are just trying so hard to please us and to get us at laugh and at jokes, and not just the Marvel uh, baffos and all that, but most mm. films kind of fall into Dune. Dune is quippy jokes in it. Yeah. Not often, but they're there. Um, so I do appreciate when a film like this can just 100% commit to this dry delivery, dry emotionality to it. But when you talk about that in terms of we going with a certain expectation, we know who this is based on, and then they portray Henry in a particular way, almost sympathetic in a lot of ways, because he is quite quiet and shy, and we really buy into this relationship that he's building with, with uh, it's Mark, isn't it? 
uh, yeah, Mark, Mark Frame. But we know the context of what he's done. And th- there's a great scene. Is it my highlight scene? Uh, no, it actually isn't. I, don't know, I guess I have two highlight scenes. There's one that sort of highlights this, where the actions that this character has done that we know in real life happened mm. almost doesn't... It feels weird that it aligns with the character that we're seeing on screen. The film addresses this, and I'll get to how in a minute. But I almost wonder if you could have structured this film in a different way that was... Say, for example, we didn't know from the 20-minute mark that everything was a police operation and that pretty much every single you know, mobster character was all just part of this orchestrated world to try and get Henry to confess to this murder. Yeah. I feel like they could have played with those elements more where we, the audience, were also maybe tricked into it. Again, that that could that could be bad because you also you don't want to sympathize with this murdering you know this real life killer more than necessary yeah you know to make the film function and if you put yourself in that shoes where it's like you're Truman and it takes you half a film to realize that you're actually being portrayed by anything and everything around you I don't know. It, it would have been more interesting, but I feel like the film was already walking that tightrope of trying to be respectful to the victims and the family. And yeah. It's a tough subject. It's interesting. Man. Yeah, it is. And it, and it really comes back to, you know, and we were talking this, like I said, this time last year, we are talking about Nit Ram, where it, we talked about how very serious that subject matter was and how uncomfortable the viewing was. But then at the same time, we sat there and went how necessary that story was to tell. Mm. Because of the cultural, um, because of the cultural importance of people today who have now grown up in a world without guns, mm. and maybe wonder why we don't have them now, that film offers a very clear reason why we shouldn't have them mm. reintroduced to our society, and we we probably never will. But well, it's it, a character portrait of someone who's obviously done this horrible thing. Yep. But it kind of it gives us hints into the kind of life someone has to live in order to get to that stage of hatred, in order to get to that stage of doing that. And then the the physical aspect of it, or the practical aspect of it, where you're right, the the scene that portrays him buying the guns is so disturbing because it's just so um, I don't want to use the word relaxed, but it, you're, it's so transactional. You're right. Mm. It's just there was not a, a second thought on the behalf of the people who are meant to you know, guard these guns and sell it to the right people and do these, you know, checks, that they are partially responsible for the people that have been murdered. And I think, I mean, that film has plenty going for it in terms... Yeah. We talked about it. We did the Nick Ram episode, and I, I personally think it's one of the best episodes we ever did. Yeah. Um, because we we have that conversation, I think here it it's somewhat applicable. They're doing something different because, again, they're not just retelling the story of how someone could have done this. It's... It's more the portrayal of the relationship than it even is a character profile of Henry, which is interesting. I think you can do that really well. You can do it with a lot of fictitious characters as well. This idea of, of maybe he's getting in, engulfed into this world where now he's brimmed with anxiety because he has to pretend to be this hardened criminal. And there's elements in there that I think are interesting yeah. related to he has his own and kid as well. I do believe that the the, the, the dry delivery and the... the, the going for that ultra-realism mm. feel with only very small times where it ever breaks that realism where, you know, we talk about the breathing exercises, but then what we're seeing when we're seeing, like, the the forests and yep. and, and and that is 
we're trying to understand the calming perception of of the mindset mm. there um is is this film trying to show pay a, a sort of a testament and a tribute to the amount of force uh, the amount of police force and assets that was put into finding this child mm. is that what the director's trying to show when he's trying to show this extensive world of hard and fake crooks to simply get an alibi confer uh, to see to get an alibi reputed yeah. so that this person was available at this time mm. not in the company of an elderly woman um I to f- then put him at the scene of the crime i think it's funny because you're right i mean practically a lot of the film does revolve around this trying to get this alibi yeah, but- checked out but I think you're right. The The wider story is them finding the body. It's not so much that they're disproving the alibi or even getting a confession out of the guy. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately it comes down to, you know, the satisfactions are probably a horrible word to use, but there is a sense of relief coming from when you lose your child that you find their body. And not that I have personal experience with that necessarily, but that's just something you would imagine. And the fact that it's not the final shot. The final, final shot of the film is is um, Mark with, with the child doing the sink and I think he's playing with the hands. But the shot prior to that, what probably could have been the last shot of this mm. film, is the one person digging through the forest, like kind of shakingly putting their hand up. And I imagine that's them finding the body of this child. Mm. So I think the fact that it all does amount to them finding the this body and giving the family that sense of closure. I think that's what really does tick it off for me. That really that that's what makes this film worthwhile in the sense that, okay, this was sort of a triumphant story of you. Right. The insane extent, this Mr. Big police procedure that's based on a Canadian police practice that they did in real life, that it's so absurd and so commendable for how like deep they went in with how many people had to portray mobsters for the fake crimes they had to come up with to indoctrinate henry yeah the effort they went through to ultimately find the body i mean that's what really ties this film together yeah and then it's also that that exploration of the the stresses that mark feels Mm. going undercover um especially because you know he has a seven-year-old son yeah and he's potentially in prox very close proximity Mm. with a child killer in in a sort of a more fictitious made-up version of this movie you would totally put that together where it's like Henry gets a hold of Mark's child and that becomes a whole dramatic bit of tension. And it kind of doesn't need to do that. The film doesn't even bother because the fact that the child is there and that that Mark has someone to look to in terms of this is what I'm ultimately trying to do is catch this monster so that my son doesn't Absolutely. end up in the same fate. So they don't have to do the whole third act big thing where they bloody kidnapped him and... No, yeah. in fact, it's like much like in real life. Often, mm. what we think in our heads is enough, um, mm. and the fact that someone's able to these sort of films really put an emphasis on how precious life is, mm. and how much the loss of one life can impact the lives of people that never even met that person. Yeah, and that's all of the strain that's put on um, all of the police men and women that are trying to bring to get this confession out of henry Mm. um um not just mark but you know the the sergeant who's you know she's going over the the footage and the 
the story and sort of yep. pieces together the investigation and um you know john who's in the room with him mm. when the confession happens it's these are they're all players in this or even paul the person that meets him on the train it's yep. you know that's why I say it's a misdirecting logline because it's not just meeting one stranger, really. It's a collection of strangers mm. that all play parts into, like you said, this Mr. Big approach where they basically just create <laughs> this whole underbelly world. See, it's funny because, like, that, the on paper, that's so fascinating to me. Is like there are so many people here orchestrating this fake underbelly world. And to me, it's like the film gets better when it stops being about that and becomes about these two characters. Which is, yeah, I don't know. I find that really fascinating. But to your point with Mark's anxiety that's, that's just festering from playing this role, and you see it play out when, um, obviously, his son goes missing temporarily. They're playing hide-and-seek, and he, like, freaks out and goes off at him. But that's followed immediately up by the scene where him doing this portrayal and then pretending to be aggro. See, it might not even be pretending. It might be a follow-up from that scene where he's being aggro to the car in front of him causes a car accident <laughs> he drives on into another car and i love the road he Didn't calls that feel like the most australian road it like... was the most australian just road <laughs> so australian that was yeah if you the if you shrubs if you told me that that one percent of this film was shot in Quinana, that that would be the one <laughs> i would guess that thousand percent it's a genuine like, it. genu- like there are genuinely scary moments like after that because of the mm. crash there starts to be that high-pitched noise in the car. Oh, my God, yeah. Um, the soundscape. I had Nala sitting on the, on the chair. You're sitting right now. And that opening scene with the... It's almost like sci-fi bugs. That's almost what it sounds like. And the eerie, um, you know, the white noise, like you said. Mm. All those combination of sounds. Nala was immediately out of the chair. She's like, I, I can't deal with this right now. <laughs> but it's good. Uh, it's it good. I think yeah. it's... One of those films that is—it's a bit of a slow process, and it's I think this burn. kind of brings sure. us into yeah, it brings us into that conversation where it's if this film is being told that the people that it's about don't want it made, mm. why are we making it? In my opinion, I was fascinated to learn that because they did approach the family prior to making the film. I don't know what—I don't know if there was a script or not. I don't know what capacity it had. Certainly, what hadn't been shot yet. And they approached the family and they pretty much, from what I understand, disowned them or said that we, we are not giving you any blessing towards this film. So at that point, if you or I were doing a story like this, we wanted to cover an Australian criminal and yeah. it's being done to death. <laughs> Australians love their Got criminals. a lot of crooks. A lot of crooks out there. If we found the family and we asked for their blessing and they said no, I don't know if I could go through with it at that point. No, I don't think I could. Because there's a difference between... Because there have been times where, like, something's been based off, like, a killer or something like yep. that. And the family's given it, it's been a really bad film, and then gone, oh, no, we were never mm. on board with it. But these ones, like, outright said... Yeah, no, I totally no, believe it in, the, in this case, yeah. And also, this film's not getting critically panned. This is getting pretty praised. It's, yeah, it's at people. I think people generally surprise. Oh, this is a Netflix film. It's I think I think Netflix bought it after the fact. I think that's yeah. what happened. But it's a good film. Yeah. yeah. And you know, we were sitting here going, "It's a good film." Is it an ethically right film? Is probably the <laughs> did it follow that sort of like you said that ethical code of biopic crime dramas mm. where obviously it's like everything. It's like where does it stop and start in yep. terms of 
okay, well then, can we ever tell... You know, we just talked about All Quiet on the Western Front in the first half of the show. What if there were families of people that died in World War One that were like, oh, I have disapprove of this. Right. Like, where does it... St- Maybe because it's personable and it is, like, it is a very personal story in terms of we clearly can... we. These were public figures that were openly in pain yeah. and suffered. That, and it wasn't that long ago. Like, it's, yeah, no, I mean, this is all what, 2011, ten, yeah, 20 less than ten, just over 10 years ago. Right. So that's not that long ago. No. Um, whereas, you know, even the Nitram situation was over 25 years ago. Mm. Um, and but nevertheless, it's still fresh. I get that. Fresh enough. Um, but then obviously it's where does it stop where does it start but mm. yeah I agree if, if I sat down with a family with you and it was like oh we would like to make this this film and they weren't having a bar of, I don't know if I could go and go and make that film yeah I think at that point I think it would sit well with me and I think because the film like I said there's that through line we talked about with ultimately it's about finding that body the extent that the police force went to find the body and all of that, but I think the film works as best when it's just about these two people and that push and pull relationship. Mm. It's what, you know, this director is known for doing now. He's done two films that really do it well. But when it comes to doing this particular story, and there actually is a response to the family from, I guess, the producers of the film. So I'll read this quote out quickly because it completely relates to what we're talking about. So this is in response to what they've said pretty recently. So the film's already made at this point. It says, The Stranger is a fictionalized account of the undercover police operation that resulted in a successful murder prosecution. Out of our deepest respect for the family, the name of the victim is never mentioned in the film, and the film does not depict any details of the murder, nor is the family represented in the film in any way. Instead, it tells the story of the unknown police professionals who committed years of their lives and their mental, physical health to resolve this case and others like it. When the film was first in development, the producers approached the family and made them aware of the film. They declined to be involved. It was a decision we continue to respect. So, yeah, that's kind of what we have been talking about in terms of the physical, mental toll mm. of the police force. and Which I think that is the epitome of the film. Yeah. That is the... To me, it that is, without a doubt, the driving focus of the film. Mm. It's not... Uh, like, the exploration of this relationship between Mark and Henry and how they sort of become friends, but not right. really. I mean, I, I never feel like Mark's ever completely forward it doesn't get into that complete f- seduction of uh of mm. this there's still always that distance there there's that professional control i think the stress his stress and identity crisis comes from the fact that he is actually a very good person right. that has clearly either lost his partner to a divorce or other circumstances and is why he is, is a single father. Is a yeah. single father, and we could probably it would probably be fair to say it's probably out of his dedication to this undercover work that has neglected that relationship. Mm. Um, so it's like everything. It's you know he's not a perfect person. He swears in front of his child. Yep. He's he you know he, he drinks actively in front of him. He's like he's trying the best he can. But yeah, I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to show that. Like I said this full police force effort to basically quell one alibi. Mm. Um, it's a tour to force in, in terms of the extent they went to do it. And not many films, I reckon, really capture the full police force overhaul mm. 
that goes into one investigation. And I think that that's a, a tribute to this film because often it's always one maverick detective or two <laughs> maverick detectives that uncover this whole case. And that's mainly because it's very difficult to showcase a full police force. Well, it's interesting because I think of films like maybe Zodiac... Um, wait, and, and that's a it's not just a police force, but like a combination of different organizations, like the newspapers and everything mm. that are all rallying together to try and figure out who this is. But that being said, even though I think that almost represents like a bigger collection of people trying to work together, I think that's where you talk about this film feeling so grounded as if you're watching a real police investigation unfold, is because it's smaller and more intimate than what Zodiac would portray, even though that film is a lot more punchier with its dialogue and everyone's a lot quippier and smarter but this just feels kind of smaller and drier but but you can tell it's almost just like every time you see a fake mobster enter the room and you your back of your brain realizes oh here's another operative involved in this in this fake organization is actually part of the police force that's the part that really and, triggers your brain if you're like wow it's such a like huge operation they're, they're, they're not all on the same front so mm. it's like Mark and Paul are clearly from this, like, West Australian police force. Right. And have been way more in the trenches. They go over to Victoria, where they're all kind of laughing and joking and, and kind of taking the piss out of mm. these... What's what's new, right? Uh, <laughs> Victorians take the piss out of WA people. Um, <laughs> but it's... um fun get. Yeah, but it's it, it's interesting, because then, of course, when it it's go time, they are all on the same page, mm. without even hesitation the the professionalism we're really the film really is showcasing that professional nature and yeah and then what we do is that they're dry but they don't lack emotion which is really quite fascinating no, there's you know, a we, great scene where where mark gets into the police car and he like he vents he's like oh you were way too close you're way too close to me you hang back more and then the response is like oh like are you okay like it wasn't even an argument about like them not doing the correct thing or the procedure or they're going to get busted. There's stress, but none of it's based on incompetency. The entire operation goes pretty much perfectly, as perfect as you could want it to, mm. in terms of there's no moment. There's the moment pretty early on when when Henry remarks, is it Paul's uh, hair? Like, oh, did you dye your hair? But the film doesn't really go into how orchestrated that was in terms of, did he almost get outed for dyeing his hair? And that that's when they decided to come up with the plot of they're going to kind of kick him out of the group and indoctrinate Henry and his replacement. Or was that always part of the plan? There's never any clear distinction that the plan is like going off the rails. So it's showing the police force very competently, mm. which again kind of goes to the point that this producer said and to the point that we've been making on the show. Beautiful. I think, yeah, I get it. Do you I have anything else you'd like to add? Um... Let's it? see. I mean, we could jump into our highlight scenes because I actually do have a couple that I wouldn't mind talking about. Right, cool. The my my initial one that I was that I wrote down, and this kind of goes into how deep did Mark and Henry's relationship actually get? Because it sounds like you're kind of leaning towards and never actually reached that pinnacle point where they were like brothers in arms, so to speak. I think the interesting one is that after Henry confesses to like you know the fake boss. And he lets it all out, and now, now it's out in the open within this group. And Mark uh, goes to hug Henry and gives him this big hug and says, "Like I'm really proud of you," which is just such a multi-layered moment because I think there is like a tinge of friendship and pride there in, in terms of him, who's been 
sort of sympathetic and shy and really unable to get out of his shell. You can look at it that way if you really want to, this murdering person. But on the same token, he's hugging a guy that could potentially murder his own child. And he almost has to play the role just to keep that going by hugging this person and keeping that friendship alive, even though he now knows for a fact this is the murderer. So I thought just that little micro scene Mm. was really fascinating. And the other one I want to talk to, well, I'll let you go first. There's relief there too, though. There's like... Yes. There's that, obviously, like you said, that multi-layer thing. And and we got to... I mean, how good is Joe Edgerton. He just every he's, time. He's great in this film. He They're just, both fathers. great. Yeah, they are. They are. I just, I, I always get such satisfaction out of particularly seeing a good Joe Edgerton film. Mm. I just, <laughs> something about him and how rough he's, he's, and he's looking a bit older, might I add. He's oh, they might at, have aged him up a little bit for this, um, but. I think no, he's in his late 40s now. But, um, yeah, I don't know. He's just such a compelling softly spoken performer. Mm. Um, he's kind of like Ben Mendelsohn. I think it's like... Yeah. I just love Same when ilk. both of them are sort of in films because they're just such interesting watches. Yeah. Um, and they both just never got that, like... They, they appear in Hollywood films, but they never have a big role in any Hollywood films, which is why it's great when you get to see, like, Ben... Mendelssohn in like Rogue One where he gets like a pretty right. big role and you're like yeah cool um, but <laughs> no um, I would him. say probably look my, my highlight scenes are, I, didn't, I I have to admit the, the car accident sequence oh yeah really captivates the level of paranoia and angst like it makes you really anxious because it's, it's, it's great because they don't cut away you're in the car and it drives forward and then bam and it's multifaceted too, because it's the anxiety is, you know, he's this undercover police officer. He's he could be a first responder. Yeah, but he but he can't. But he's... Mark has to be the one who's like, let's get away, because actually it's Henry that goes to help, mm. or at least sit. That there. is very fascinating. Yeah, um, and at least wants to like kind of help, but like not really. But yeah. he, he's a little bit more proactive, obviously than Mark, who we know if he was. If this was just every day, he would 100% go and help. But because of the situation, and I think because of the loud noise from the crash, that's that that like offsets the the, the recording equipment mm. in the car. So the the fact that the anxiety doesn't just end from oh my god, these guys might be dead. It lingers um, on, yeah. It lingers, and then it leads to the like I said, the equipment, and then then they have to torch the car. Like, isn't that the? Oh, is it the same car they torch? Yeah. That would make sense, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, what it does. Yeah, it's just a really good example of anxiety. And I think not shortly after that, you get that hide-and-seek sequence, which really, mm. really, um, with the nightmares. Oh, I think that's right before. Yeah. I think that leads into the Yeah, it does, yeah. Which is, I think, because that's what I was thinking before, is I think that's how, when he's being aggressive in the car and they're, like, beeping at his car, like, come on, move forward, move up, what are you doing? I think they're very purposely edited together, those two scenes, to show that... This fake character aggression that Mark's putting on might actually stem from very real anxiety. Yeah. So I think, yeah, they're, they're very important scenes together, those two. I think you're right. Yeah. The other scene I want to give a quick shout-out to as well is when I think they're watching the tape of the girl doing... I, I don't know. If it's, so is this was this his daughter on the confession tape? Not a confession tape, but speaking on his behalf, I'm actually generally blanking on this right now, who that was. 
but basically, you know, her crying and talking about the detail of, I guess, the abduction or what oh, he's I done. Oh, I it was a girlfriend. Oh, it might have been a girlfriend. I'm, I, yeah, I'm sh- shooting I know what you're talking right about now. now. Yeah, that I scene. I thought it was a partner, yeah. It's about 40 minutes in, yep. and it cuts to this sort of the underlaying her audio and her description of him, of Henry, as it cuts to him sleeping in the car, almost mm. peacefully in a way. And I, when I alluded to earlier the fact that I think the film is referring to this idea that the, they're making this character more sympathetic than he probably deserves to be, is in that moment when you're hearing in the audio the things he's done, the things he's you know potentially done at this point in the story, and then seeing him in this very innocent, sleeping, calming state. And it's almost that feeling of, wow, this is the person I've been watching for the last 40 minutes. Like, I haven't been subjected to this horror, at least not yet. I know the film starts in media res with them digging, mm. um, which is a great little scene once you realize what that... That's basically jumping to the end of the film. Yeah, I wanted to give that scene a shout out because I thought that was the film's way of acknowledging that they might be overly sympathizing with this guy. Um, yeah, that was my interpretation. Yeah, of cool. It, but yeah. Beautiful. Well, The Stranger is currently out on Netflix. Mm. Near you. Yeah. A Netflix near me. A Netflix near you. It's very Much close. Like my fingers are on the key. Ah. Which is really near Netflix now. <laughs> it's closer to Netflix than it is in real life. Ugh. Go to Morley, there's a... I gotta, I gotta Man, how good if Blockbuster, if Blockbuster became the streaming platform, would have been so much cooler. That would, that there is some fascinating politics right there, because they have such a strong, connected infrastructure, 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 infrastructure. My goodness, yeah. I'm blanking today. Um, with all these other film companies, God, that's a fascinating alternative universe where Blockbuster went into their own streaming service, but they had all those connections established already. That would have been fascinating. The problem is, if they were too early to the game, they might have um, charged for films independently of each other. Kind of like Prime. We have to buy each thing on its own. Yeah, but then there would have been that no different to it. Foxtel at that point. Mm. So, Which, that was their only competition for a while. Before streaming, it was Foxtel. So, so I could have done that. I yeah. feel like the, the, the subscription-based service model was only a matter of time away. Yeah, um, of course. And Netflix were just the first to it. Well, that's what we're dealing with in games now. You got Xbox Game Pass, and and then the argument to be made: the high tiers, is yeah. Netflix the best streaming platform nowadays? Like, oh, uh, in the in the it was the most revolutionary, but it's not the best. Yeah, I think a lot of people are just sick of Netflix now. Yeah, plus they're raising their prices and everything. I think it comes down to that now, where the structures are established. Well, the, ad, the ad model, the ad model coming yeah. in this yeah. month. It's oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh boy. The, the structure's there, and everyone's taking from that structure with, you know, slightly different... I think it really just comes down to content. I hate calling films content, but that's that's what it is now in streaming and online. It depends on content and simply how the website works. I think Netflix is probably the worst one in terms of the streaming bitrate and resolution because I watched Acute um, Misfortune on Stan and had absolutely no problem with the visual of that film and then I watched The Stranger and every scene that even looked kind of dark looked horrible mm. so I think that's a factor as well is the bit rates um, I know Binge there's a whole thing going on where they're not doing 4K people are upset about that so um, I think a lot of those are now are the factors for what is the best streaming service out yeah. there 
and available content. I think that's a big yeah. one. Those are the two um, now, I reckon. Yeah, well, speaking of streaming platforms, mm. Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas near us? Yeah, well, content-wise, there's not a lot. Uh, coming to Prime, you've got films like The Big Sick, A Day to Die, Downton Abbey, A New Era. Uh, Disney Plus, we've got Fire of Love. That's a documentary we heard of a while back of the, the two scientists-slash-lovers who die doing what they love in a volcano. So definitely going to jump on that now that mm. it's, that's on available on Disney+. Plus. Coming to Netflix, you've got Falling for Christmas, which sees Lindsay Lohan play a young, newly engaged airless. It says young. She's 36. Okay, she's not a teen. She's 36. Develop amnesia after a skiing accident and is taken under the care of a handsome cabin owner and his daughter. What do you reckon, Zeke? Hmm? I mean... Sounds like a Lindsay Lohan film from about 20 years ago when they <laughs> when she actually was young. She's back, Zeke. She's back and, and still young, apparently. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm not saying they're 36 and young. I'm just saying, when I started reading that, young, newly engaged, I was like, oh, she's 19. 30, oh, it's Lindsay Lohan. Okay. 36 is not young. Like, I'm trying to be nice, Seeker. I'm trying to... <laughs> it's just not. <laughs> I'm trying to... You can't... You're speaking to a girl who's 36. Yeah, if 60-year-olds watch it, then... That's who this logline's written for. My Lord, you also got the fifth season of The Crown coming to Netflix this week. I feel like that was a bit sneaky. I feel like they dropped it on us. Well, The Crown? Yeah. I, it was only like a week ago. I was like, oh, crap, The Crown's about to drop a new season. Yeah. wonder how they're going to go up to the, the modern day. <laughs> I think, did they have a bit of time left before that happens? What are or? they up to? They're up, they were up to Diana, I was Diana's was, in there. Which means, like, we're I'm in the 80s. Out of the loop. Yeah. It's, at that point. We're coming up. So, well, I hope they start time skipping quite a bit. But, I, I mean, I say that having not watched the show. Well, I'm like, I hope they do this. What happens after <laughs> Diana dies? Nothing happens for about 20 years until... <laughs> until, literally, like, what happens after Diana dies? Oh, God. When, when was the royal family... The royal family wasn't, like, relevant in the, the, the talking of people until this Meghan Markle stuff <laughs> happened, which wasn't over the last five years. And even then, it's like, most people don't care. She's <laughs> just a... <laughs> I'll take your word on this, yeah, Fair enough. Because uh, you know more than me. Um, coming to cinemas, you got Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Mm. Are we excited for this, Zeke? No. <laughs> no, I just like... <laughs> no. I'm sure it'll be all right. I'm, I'm curious because I mean, it's that thing. Every Marvel film comes out and the, the first impressions are, oh my God, it's it's brilliant. It's magnificent. Under every and then letterbox it's, it's, score for Marvel films, they should put visual effects artists that didn't get paid. It's <laughs> a gigantic list. Visual effects houses that went bankrupt working <laughs> on this film. Oh, Lord. Yeah. I might see this. I don't really know. I didn't even like the first Black Panther. I thought it was mega overrated. I get why it was important, of course, but... Yeah. That was actually the first Marvel film where I was like, holy crap, the visual effects... This they were, they were bad, though. They were yeah, really Black, bad. Were really I remember bad that. Black Panther. And I mean, oh, people said, like, oh, well, you know, um, Infinity War comes out like a month later, so all the attention went to that. It's like, sure, but now it's just an all-out crisis, so. Yeah, but, I mean, like, obviously, knowing what we know now, sure, that, yeah. this, this pattern was going to just occur eventually. I mean, it's... it's She-Hulk looks god horrible. <laughs> it's just... Well, that was a joke in She-Hulk, literally in the last episode. She's like, she's in her Hulk form. And then the Kevin Feige robot 
says, oh, can you please shift because you're expensive? And then she shifts back to, to her human self and says something like, oh, well, the whole team's on Black Panther now, so so I can't be Hulk anymore. That's like a joke they make. Anyway, that's... <laughs> anyway, no, I have to. I, watch, I have to. I can't bring myself to do it though. No, I don't do it. Look, I there's a. Ch- if someone asked me, if Jack messaged me, he asked if I wanted to see um, Black Adam. I was like, nah, nah, bro, come on, not happening. But if you asked me to watch Black Panther, mm. it's a different, different Black thing. You didn't want to see Shazam too. No, When's Black that coming Adam? out? I don't know. I wouldn't mind. First Shazam's fun. We fun. we did that in the podcast. Episode twelve. That was a whole that was a whole week episode film yeah. of the week. Jeez, we were really <laughs> we were going for all the Yeah, I don't know when the last then. superhero film was on here. Infinity War probably. I don't the count la- the Batman. Oh, the last superhero film we did yeah. on the show. Oh, we did all the Spider Men. Oh yeah, true. Yeah, that was We did yeah, Avengers Endgame. We did yeah, we did you know what the first one was was Captain Marvel. The Captain Marvel, Endgame, uh, uh, Shazam, then Spider-Man Far From Home and No Way Home. And... Is that it? That might have been it. I don't think we've covered any other Marvel films since then. Mm. Shazam's so, obviously not Marvel, but... Yeah, I don't count the Batman. Because the Batman was... That's true, yeah. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a DC film, but... It's a detective film. Oh, we did... um No, we didn't do Birds of Prey. We did The Suicide Squad. That, no. kind of, that kind of counts. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Anyway, we're getting real sidetracked. We are. Um, my point is that there's a chance I might actually go to the cinema and watch Black Panther. Okay. Out of curiosity of, like, how they... What they do. Because, uh, credit where credit's true, the trailer was very vague. I have no idea what the story is. And yeah. that's kind of cool. So, I like that. Uh, the Velvet Queen takes place in the Tibetan highlands as an award-winning photographer attempts to document the infamously elusive Snow Leopard... Little, little nature documentary for you. Very exciting. That sounds cool. Greenhouse by Yoast sees the man himself extend on a lifetime's worth of zero-waste activism by devising the Future Food System, a self-sufficient residency that provides shelter, food, and energy while reusing any byproducts. And a Q&A screening with him and Matt Stone will be held this Sunday the 13th at Luna. I saw the trailer for this. This is kind of cool. Mm. Trying to make a very self-sufficient house... Um, the challenges of doing that, especially in today's world, seems interesting. And, hey, Q&A, meet the director. That's yeah. cool. Um, speaking of Luna, as part of Luna's British Film Festival, they're also rescreening the 1987 classic A Licence to Kill on Thursday the 10th and premiering. This, Zeke, this looks excellent. The new Sam Mendes film, Empire of Light, plays this Saturday the 12th, which is a shame because I'm busy that's this Saturday, sees a romance develop between Olivia Colman and Michael Ward in an old cinema on the south coast of 1980s England. This looks dope. This looks cool. excellently shot. Obviously, those two performers. Oh, my God. Sam Mendes. Oh, my God. This it just And a love letter to cinema. I'm a sucker for it. Yeah, I'm here for it. It's, it's, it's going to be great. I'm getting a little, like... I don't need the trailer to tell me the importance of 24 frames per second, but, like... I'm still excited, you know. <laughs> I want to appreciate film like the old days. It's it's good. And finally, another Scorsese classic is playing this Friday night at Palace. And um, Zeke. Yeah, what's up? This uh, Scorsese classic. They've been playing a few of these. They have. They there's, have indeed. There's, there's, there's a special reason they're doing Can it. you believe it, Jake? Hmm. Next week on the show. <laughs> 
We're reaching our 200th episode. Oh my god, it snuck up on us. So it means we're doing a director's corner, obviously. That is true, we've got to pick a director's Zeke. And I'm really surprised that our 40th director <laughs> has not been done on the show yet. It's uh, crazy. And you know, it is, I believe it, it's his, it's his 80th? I think it might be his 80th birthday next week. You know, a day before your birthday, Zeke. Some, so. Somehow, cool things just line up like that. They all line up. So I reckon, Zeke, it would be awesome. It doesn't have to happen. Sometimes things happen. But it would be awesome for us to go to the cinema this Friday Very and watch a Scorsese classic to do a Scorsese director's corner. It was incredibly overdue Scorsese director's corner. I'm very excited. But, Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Taxi Driver. <laughs> Second call, 401 Port Alvin, 417. De Niro. In Bang the Drum Slowly, the critics called him a brilliant new talent. After Mean Streets, they said he was a genius. For his performance in The Godfather Part Two, they gave him the Academy Award. Come on, man. Just get me out of here, alright? Now, Robert De Niro creates a terrifying portrait of life on the edge of madness. Tabby, just forget about this. It's nothing. Taxi Driver, a film by Martin Scorsese. A mentally unstable veteran works as a nighttime taxi driver in New York City, where the perceived decadence and sleaze fuels his urge to violent action. Very exciting. That is one of the coolest loglines I've ever read. <laughs> Very exciting. So 200 episodes... Next week on the show, I'm sure we'll think of something in the next week that'll be a special uh, 200th episode. We're going to have to do something important for Um, episode 200. We did have a bunch of people be like, oh, congrats on episode 100 two years ago. We did, yeah. We're not going to do that this time. No, we'll have to think of something new. We did a competition as well. We did a lot. We did do a lot. I think think for episode 200, we're going to do something a bit bit more low-key. Yeah. But perhaps more important than any of those other things we did last time. So, yes. I like that tease. Let's leave it at that. Beautiful. Well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Beep, beep.